Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello. Hello. Got a little bonus us for you this week. Bonus episode. It's not just us, in case you're sick of the sound of our voices. Um, Do you want to explain why we're here and who we have with us? Yes, it's it's an interview with the author of a new book. His name is Alan Giradas. Uh, and the book is The Persuaders, Winning Hearts and Minds in a Divided Age. And we had a little preview of it on this week's episode, but this is a fuller interview with him. And and really, it's about how we go about persuading people to progressive causes rather than simply preaching or lecturing at them. And and it was we found it a really, I think, really fascinating and insightful conversation. And the divided age is such exactly. a such a key aspect of it. We've talked a lot about polarization and what social media has unleashed. And he's so good on what works and what doesn't work and what's a waste of your time and actually just the psychology of people. So here it is. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Anand, hello. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Uh, thank you for joining us. And um, it's, it's something I'm always interested in is the difference between the book that a writer thinks they're about to write and then what it turns out to be. And I wondered how true that is or isn't for the persuaders. So how, how different does the book that you ended up writing and the stories that you end up telling look from the original pitch? Very different. And I think the difference is hope. Uh, in the sense that I started this book because I didn't have much. It was kind of late 2019 and then early 2020. And I was sitting in the United States despairing for 
a lot of the reasons that many of us have been despairing in these years. Democracy feeling like it's on the retreat. Those who want a smaller and smaller definition of we, the people, uh, prevailing over those who want a more expansive and generous understanding. Those who want to protect the planet, losing the argument uh, in many ways to those who would prefer it to burn down. Uh, those who want to solve problems through political violence, winning over those who want to resolve things democratically through talking. And I was full of despair about us kind of losing the future and, 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 and being unable to win the argument. That, that and, doesn't sound like a great pitch meeting from the well, publisher's perspective. Well, that's why, you know, I, I didn't have the answer to my despair in my own heart. I needed to go reporting, um, which is what I do. And I went and looked for people who were succeeding where I was not, where many of us are not, uh, who are still changing minds, still reaching people, still managing to build bigger coalitions in a time when that has become really hard for most of us. And I spent much of the last few years in company with them, watching them do what they do, talking to them about how they do what they do, obscure people well-known. And at the end of the process, I felt a lot more hope uh, and I think it's actually a surprisingly hopeful book. I'm not known for my hopeful books. And a lot of people have done a bit of a double take after reading this saying, you know, did you mean to make this book hopeful? But it is a hopeful book because I found people out there who I think have a lot to teach the rest of us who believe in human rights, believe in democracy, believe in truth uh, about how we can do much better at winning the future. But it sounds like you approached it with some certainty that you would find the tools for positive change out there. No certainty that I would find it with the desire to find it. There's a cognitive scientist, one of the many subjects featured in The Persuaders, named John Cook, who has thought about this on, on, on your area, Ed, of climate. And then when COVID got raging, was thinking about it in that application. How do you protect people from dangerous, extremely well-funded lies? And what John Cook taught me is that what most of us are doing, whether it's with our uncles at you know a Christmas or uh, in public life, is backfiring. We're often unintentionally, unwittingly driving people deeper and deeper into the corners of disinformation on whether it's Brexit or climate or anything else. And there are things we can do better. There are ways we can talk to people that work. This is not a book about like answers within my heart, although I would love for it to be an autobiographical account of my brilliant ideas on persuasion. It's really an account of people who knew what I didn't, and I think what many of us don't. What would you say is the central sort of uniting thesis about how to persuade or the way in which we should be persuading in that we're not at the moment? Yeah, I love that question because I... In my books, I always write about disparate people, disparate worlds, and I tell their stories. And, and kind of only at the end do you see if there's any patterns, because I'm not starting with the patterns, right? I'm starting with the people. And yet, at the end, there really were a couple very clear things that emerged. So I think, above all, the people I'm writing about who do a good job of persuasion in a divided time, their mental model of people on the far side from them politically is really different from most of our mental models. They think of people as fundamentally complicated rather than fundamentally monolithic. They have the discipline to continue to believe that about people, even in the face of all the apparent evidence that it's not true, even in the face of all their anger. The thing is, I think part of the culture of a polarized time is that we all know that we are complicated. And you and I may agree on issues. So I may grant 
that you are also complicated. I will grant you the complexity of your humanity. But the, to the people on the distant shore, we imagine that they're just monoliths, that, that the kind of they'd be a single story all the way down. First of all, empirically, this is not true. Second of all, it's an incredibly self-defeating political attitude. You think you're insulting them, but what you're really talking about is your own political impotence to move them. And so once these persuaders have that different mental model on something like climate, they are aware that someone thinks climate change is not real or has been influenced by any number of disinformation or, or thinks that government is not the right actor, whatever it is. But they're then asking, what is the B-side of the record of that person? What else may be going on? I've watched a lot of campaigning on trans rights, on immigrant rights in America. A lot of people will come to you and say in the United States, we need a strong border. These immigrants are overrunning our country, right? You had a lot of the same debates here with Brexit. Is that the only story? Or as some of these campaigners I, I witnessed, they will say, have you ever felt like an underdog in your life? Have you ever felt counted out because of factors beyond your control? So I would say above all, that notion of people as fundamentally complicated is, is paramount. And second, I would say, there is, everyone I'm writing about in this book thinks about the fundamental work of politics as, to use a term they use often, meaning-making, which is a 24-7, 365 process of helping citizens array their patchwork of experiences, stimuli, things they read, things their kids come home from school and say, just the raw material of life, helping people array that into a politics, into a worldview. And one of the things I heard again and again from these subjects is the far right, the extremist right, actually understands the importance of meaning-making as a 24-7, 365 process. And is not just asking you for money and votes, is engaged in, through media, through other things, helping you make sense of the world. And that the political left on a whole bunch of things is essentially more of a transactional politics. Please vote for us, and then we'll offer you this policy. Please do this thing, then we'll do that thing. Please donate $5. This is a confusing era we live in, the era of globalization, of climate change, of demographic change, of a gender revolution, of an LGBT rights revolution. People are bewildered by the modern world. There's been more social change in this era than maybe our ancestors ever lived through. And I don't think those of us who want more democracy, more human rights, more justice for more people, I don't think we have done as good a job as the far right at walking with people through their psychological transitions. I don't think it's just true here or in America. If you look at India, where I was a, a correspondent for the New York Times, why is India now in the political situation it's in? I covered India in the go-go days of the 2000s, globalization, sushi restaurants everywhere, India shining at Davos, but under the growth under the explosion, under the new connections to the world, Indians were becoming unmoored. They were losing a sense of themselves. And just because you're growing at 8% doesn't mean that you're not struggling with who you are. And there was an undercurrent that I now realize I underplayed as a reporter of people losing a sense of who they were. And the far right in India has spent 20 years getting into that vacuum. And the other side in India was essentially promising policy. And we cannot bring policy to the kind of psychological battle that is politics in a confusing age. There's some continuity, I think, with what you're talking about and what you write about how on the left, 
um, there's this idea that people have to be 100% on board with an idea that there has to be a kind of ideological purity before you can work with somebody. But then within the book, there's the conflict of that and the amount of time and energy that the left can spend trying to be palatable to a middle. So how do you reconcile those two things? Well, first of all, I think one of the central challenges of the book is in coalition, how do you balance the imperative of having important internal schisms and discussions and disagreements, and at the same time being able to pull it together and hang together in the world, right? First of all, arguments are good. It's nice to not be in a cult. Like, you know, in the ruling party in North Korea, there's very little internal schisms, and it's not a measure of its health. On the other hand, if, if, if you're constantly squabbling and having internal conflicts that distract you from the real enemies out there, that's a problem. I think a bit about it like a family. I think if you're in a family, you want to have good, healthy family arguments. Actually, a family that doesn't have those is in more trouble than a family that does. And I think you then need to be able to go take a shower, put on nice clothes, and go out to a restaurant or whatever, and not have the huge argument in the restaurant. So I think we need a political left that knows how to have arguments, internal family arguments, and knows how to get out there and make a case to the world. Um, and so these values of coalition are central to, to the Persuader's book. And and a lot of the activists I was, was talking about are trying to figure this battle out. They are very much for airing some of these important fights that, that have actually allowed a lot of people who were not represented and seen well by these movements, including by center-left parties historically, to be much more visible than they are now. And I'm grateful for that. It's helped my life uh, and many people's lives. But this problem of an excess of purity is also real. It should not be hard to join movements for progress. And at the end of the day, the fundamental irony hovering over a lot of our politics, at least in the US for me, is that some of the most exclusionary dystopian dehumanizing movements of our time in terms of their actual agenda have managed to give off a vibe of being welcoming and come as you are. And some of the most egalitarian, inclusionary, all of us movements can give off a feeling of being standoffish and hard to access if you don't know the right terms, if you don't have all the right kind of ideas. And I think we need to have movements for progress that are self-confident enough that you can come into our space not knowing all the terms, not knowing, you know, what white supremacy means or what transgender means, but your heart is good. And we should be self-confident enough that we can educate you in our spaces. You don't need to educate yourself on your own time and only ring the doorbell when you've cleaned yourself up. I think that air that the political left has given a lot of people is really, really problematic. And I think, I, as I say in the book, we need, this word has become weaponized, but we need the woke, which I think I claim that label proudly, I think it's better than being asleep, to make space for the still waking. Do you get what I mean about the disconnect between those internal conversations and arguments about purity that happen within the coalition of the left and then the message that the left then take to voters to an electorate who they're trying to persuade where there's a lot of compromise and a lot of trying to second guess what is palatable to an electorate at the risk of kind of forsaking yeah. the principles well i think i mean and, and i think you've probably had versions of this argument here with labor which is 
I think there is a in the U.S. in the Democratic Party there is a dominant theory of how you persuade that I think has fallen short, and many people that I'm writing about in this book are trying to challenge. The U.S. in the Democratic Party has been persuasion through dilution, which is I'm going to start with a maximalist, idealistic, ambitious version of an idea: healthcare for everyone or racial justice. I'm going to start there, but then. I'm going to persuade and, and reach people, expand the circle for this idea by adding a lot of water to the mix and whisking the water into this uh, idea. And now it's going to be a very thin, light gruel. And I'm going to offer this to the middle who's you know calling me a communist or calling me whatever. And I'm hoping that they won't think I'm a communist anymore because now it's healthcare for most people through private insurance instead of you know single payer healthcare or something like that. And what happens is, as we've seen with Barack Obama, we've seen with Joe Biden, we've seen with Bill Clinton, what happens is those people still think you're a communist much of the time. They still don't like you, but now you've also left your own base cold because they voted for you because they wanted something big. They wanted their life to be changed. And now you're, you know, not. So a lot of the people I'm writing about in the book, these persuaders, they actually propose a kind of inversion of that model where you persuade actually by standing bravely and quite firmly for big ambitious things, for the big ambitious version of a thing. And then, with your feet planted firmly in the soil, you do a much better job than progressive forces have done at reaching out to people you haven't addressed well in the past through how you communicate, through how you craft your arguments, through the kinds of appeals you make, through the kind of framing you do, right? This is actually what, again, the right does very effectively. It takes ideas that benefit 1% of people and is able to routinely market them to 50, 60, 70% of the public. It's an Olympic dive of a, of a political task. And the challenge for the left is to take things that, you know, would benefit You're most people. You're saying maybe the left has ideas that could appeal to 50, 60, 70% of the population, but managed to make them only appeal to the 1%. <laughs> You know, at the at the at the most extreme caricature of it, but I think it actually comes from and you and you you do this work. But I think there's actually a complacency that can come in from your heart being in the right place, right? At, at some level, if you're working on the right and you are literally trying to make Britain or America work for bankers and corporate CEOs and oligarchs and you need to win majorities in elections, you, you're not ever going to be complacent. You know that it is, it's going to be always hard work for you. You're going to need to craft great messages because structurally your program depends on most people's lives not getting better, but thinking that you care for them, right? So in some ways, I think there's just like a muscularity to the right because of how hard the task is of continually not benefiting most people and, and convincing them that they're being benefited. I think on the left, there's the opposite problem. Like, your heart's in the right place. You want to make the planet habitable. You want people to have health care. You want people to not come home from work with injuries and with some economic security for their family. And so at some level, I've, I've perceived on many of the people I know and, and like on the political left, a kind of, people should just get it. People should know that these, these policies are good. People should know, you know. And, and I think one of the pleas of this book is that we need 
on the left, a politics that really takes people as they are, that understands the role of emotion, of psychology, of how people actually make decisions, that frankly plays into fear in a generative way, that is willing to pick fights in a generative way, that is willing to name names in a generative way. Don't just say what you're against. Don't just say the other guys are bad. Show what the world would look like if you win. I think that takes, actually, that probably takes me very neatly onto my, the question next question I was going to ask, which is, I think the subject you're talking about is Annette Schenker Osario. Yes. And we've had her on the podcast before, but her work is good for kind of boiling this down into a kind of way of thinking and the way sometimes things can be done. So, so say a little bit about her and what you learned from her. Yeah, you know, Anat Shankar Osorio is, I, I would argue, the most important political message consultant on the left in the U.S. And she actually works around the world. She was involved with Lula, who just won the presidency in Brazil, and she's successful campaigns in Australia and elsewhere. And, of course, if the left was better at listening to messaging in America, she would be even more influential than she is, but she's incredibly influential in movement and activist spaces in particular. And what she thinks about a lot is... How do you get past this notion of kind of cutting the limbs off of your program in order to appeal to people and instead stand for those big things, as I said, but explain them much more effectively to a much broader range of people? And she has a, you know, a, a bunch of kind of mantras and formulas. I would say one of them is she argues, and there's a lot of evidence to support this, that our whole notion of moderate or undecided or swing voters is completely wrong. That essentially the model we have, most of us, is that these swing voters are people in the middle, that they're in the kind of mathematical midpoint. They want kind of the halfway between what the right and left are offering. And her model of uh, swing voters is that they swing, which is to say they're torn. They're not halfway between two things. They're undecided between two things, which is different. In other words, being an undecided voter or persuadable voter is a situation. It's not an identity. It's not a permanent position in the center. It's not a, it's not a milk toast middle. It's a, it's a state of kind of not having a fully baked worldview. A lot of people don't live, eat and breathe politics, thankfully, and they don't have as coherent a worldview. And so, as she puts it, they can be toggled into an incredibly progressive way of understanding the world, and they can be toggled into an incredibly regressive and narrow way of looking at the world, right? And we know this. I mean, we, you know, we, we imagine people are immovable, but the support for gay marriage, for example, in our lifetimes has gone from well, well, well under, you know, 30% to well over 70% in the United States and many other places, right? That's a lot of people on the right. This is a lot of people. Everything about them didn't change, but... They met people, they had experiences, they watched culture, arguments were made, people were moved. Um, and so Anat then thinks a lot about not how do you reach someone in the middle, but how do you take these persuadable voters who are in that situation of being torn, and how do you encircle them with the feeling that your way of looking at the world is the more normative one? And this is the core interesting different she, she's not saying it's about reason and logic and your argument the syllogism works more correctly than the other side's syllogism she thinks it's about what is normal people are looking for what is normal is it more normal in my community to think that this climate thing is some big hoopla and hoax or is it more normative in my community to say we have got to do better by our children right and when people, particularly those kind of torn people, when they perceive what is normal in those ways, it, they're likely to go with it. And so what you have to do then, the work of politics, is to get 
people chattering incessantly about your program, not just voting for it, like you can't get them to shut up about it. And I think if you're in politics, that means that you really, it, it really provides a new lens because the, but the policies that would have the most impact may not always be the policies that would get people shouting from the rooftops, right? So for example, a very simple example in American politics recently, Biden's Inflation Reduction Act, which is actually climate policy, incredibly important, right? No one's life is transformed by it this year or next year, right? It's going to save all of us, hopefully, and, you know, from planetary apocalypse. But no one's singing from the rooftops just because no one's had some cathartic life experience because of it. Something comparatively smaller that also happened, wiping out student debt for millions of people, right? For many million Americans this year, the most important thing in their life was just granted to them by Joe Biden. And I can assure you that at Thanksgiving, at Christmas dinner, in family group chats, I can assure you this is a top three topic of conversation for the whole year. And I, I think what Anat is saying is an issue like that may be underestimated by traditional political calculus. What gets people passionate in their communities is the most important. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I mean, the other things I take out of her, and I, I'm not going to do justice to this properly, but you, and you'll be able to correct me, is I think three lessons, which is, and, and I'll try and articulate them as best as I can. W one is start with the positive, not the negative, because there is a tendency on the left to say things are bad, not to say, you know, actually things could be good. It's a positive vision. Secondly, and I think it very much speaks to what you were saying earlier, is sort of build a bridge to where people are and identify, you know, what they're feeling. So I'll give you an example in my area. We can talk about the climate crisis, and lots of people do care about the climate crisis, but for lots of people, a very pressing issue for now is the energy bills crisis. And actually, sort of building a bridge to people and saying, actually, you know, we should be going solar and renewable and so on, because it's, it's good for the climate, but it's also a lot cheaper. And it's not embarrassing. It's, it's something to be proud of to build a bridge to where people are. And then I suppose the third thing, which I think is important for me, I can see maybe more easily in the US, is you sort of you don't just criticize your opponents, but you try and like expose what they're trying to do, really. So I guess in America, it's about trying to divide people, for example, on racial grounds. 
to, in a way, kind of divide people who would have economic interests that, that are similar. I, I probably haven't done justice to her lessons properly. No, but- I think these are all important. Let's 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 take each of them because I think these are core. And and she's not the only one in the book, in a way, who says some of these things. I think they they show up in multiple people, which gives them even more force to me. Paint the beautiful tomorrow is the first one you talked about, right? And and this is a real problem. I, I think that the detours from this that often uh, ensnare the left are one talking in a policy or kind of procedural language, right? So Joe Biden, for example, the big agenda that he had was build back better, right? And it was like, build back better, build back better. Now, that's a fine thing. But if you actually look at some of the original versions of that bill, that bill was going to give seniors dental care in America who have never had dental care. It was going to give seniors eyeglasses who've never had eyeglasses. If this passes... There are people who are going to see next year, be able to see, who can't see right now. What a remarkable thing. And yet the whole conversation was like, build back better, the reconciliation pack. It was like everyone going on television was like talking about it in this technical language instead of saying, the Democrats are for teeth. We're the party for teeth. We want a country where everyone has teeth and everyone can hear their grandkids cry for the first time. And somehow that was... I can't think of a single message I heard in that period when the end state of what the world looks like if this passes was described, right? Paint the beautiful tomorrow, make us see it. Second, the bridge point. In the, in the book, I call it meet people where they are, right? Which And you're exactly right. You know, I think there's a, uh, Anat Shankar Surya calls this the responsibility complex on the left. There's a, you know, uh, she also calls it the, a, a feeling of the need to do non-strategic political education, right? So voters are coming and telling you, I really care about gas prices. And you're telling them, well, well, Mitchell, that's great. But, but allow me to tell you about something that's even more important. The planet's ending in, you know, 50 years. And you, you should not do that, obviously. So starting with what are, what are people afraid of? What are they concerned about? What are they telling you matters? And backing what you're doing into their psychological lived experience. And as you say, Ed, the, the, this is not deceptive. It, it is the case that energy bills relate to climate uh, and so on and so forth. And then finally, this notion of explaining the con. This comes up you know, with Anat, but it also comes up in my chapter on disinformation. Often what we feel compelled to do is respond to disinformation or to tactics of division and hate, respond to them by rebutting them, right? People are not persuaded away from that kind of disinformation and hate simply by it being rebutted. In fact, they can become more guarded and more dug in their corners. What does sometimes work on some people is loving, genuine concern that people are being conned, they're being played. And it only works if you're able to explain the full story, as you said, Ed, of why, how. And look, I'm not a, I'm not a Pollyanna, like this is not going to work 90% of the time, but it works enough in these uh, research projects people have done to avert some very terrible outcomes. Ed, as someone who's been around the um, electoral block a few times and, the, you know, spent a life campaigning, how does this sit with you? I mean, well, and it sort of makes me always think, you know, the left in general doesn't spend enough time on thinking about these issues. And I really liked you saying, I was actually going to ask you this, and you sort of anticipated the question that it's not persuasion by dilution. Because I think sometimes when this is talked about, people think, oh, yeah, you're just saying you want to just sort of lowest common denominator, 
lose all your edge. And I don't. I think that is absolutely not what you're saying. And I think it's very important for you to set that out. I, I've got a question, which is, to what extent, while writing the book and then after, have you used this in your own life? And have you noticed a difference? It's interesting. I think the biggest thing that I was sort of persuaded of while while writing it was particularly a lot of my own social media presence and Twitter behavior. Uh, I don't think I'm alone in this, but I, I certainly have been lulled into the incentives of these platforms uh, as much as anybody, maybe more than many, and participated gleefully in a kind of... I mean, of the reward twi- system of Twitter is not yeah. persuasion. <laughs> no, it is, it is, it is dopamine for, for dunking on people, you know, and dopamine feels great, but, but it's not persuasion. And but people often think they're persuading on Twitter. You know, they that's do what's what you're so dangerous. T- they're doing what you're talking about. Jeff, maybe in the Musk era, maybe you could suggest to Elon Musk that he has a persuasion thing that you can click. You, you I know, know I don't have an open channel to Elon Musk, don't you? I, I assumed he was a big listener of this podcast. <laughs> I, I mistook you for somebody else. But don't you think, imagine, imagine, the, imagine if the reward hierarchy was there was a persuasion button. How many persuasions have you had rather than how many likes have you had? Can you imagine? And and by the way, what I love about that idea, although they would never do it, is that it reveals that the way these platforms end up is a result of design architecture. These are not like intrinsic human qualities, right? If there was no like button and there was a you changed my mind button. Persuasion button, yeah. Mm. I, I think we would have ended up with a different Twitter. Maybe this is why Jeff Social should be born. Maybe when the dawn of the Jeffocracy, which is our podcast yes. utopia, we, we could nationalise Twitter. Well, no, I'm thinking you should... You know how Donald Trump set up Truth Social? I'm thinking you could set up Jeff Social. I know, but that didn't go great for Donald Trump, did it? <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Ed, Ed, why are you cut out of all the names for these uh, platforms you're going to create? Yeah, that is a very good question. <laughs> he likes being an Eminem on screes. So he can wash his hands of responsibility when they fail. <laughs> Also in your life, has it changed the way you talk to people, persuade people? Yeah. But on Twitter, I would say it made me use it less and it made me stop, I think, doing the simple calling out thing as yeah. much as I was doing. In, in my regular life, you know, I would say, yeah, again, I mean, I think the as the Biden era dawned, you know, Joe Biden is not necessarily my flavor of politician on the left, someone who's just very, very temperamentally cautious and moderate by orientation. And yet, as he came to the presidency, he was really listening to more progressive elements of his coalition. I think I would have felt an earlier incarnation of me would have felt pressure to just be holding Biden's feet to the fire as like my only move or or kind of roasting him every time he fell short on something. And I was kind of persuaded in a way by his demeanor and his ability to listen to the coalition and his openness, I think, to progressive voices to influence him. It kind of influenced me to, like, give this guy a bit of a chance and not assume bad faith. Um, and I think for a lot of us progressives in the U.S. Who, who went on that journey, I wasn't alone in that. I think to a great extent that faith has been rewarded. He's not perfect. He's not the same as a, you know, young progressive dynamo. But... I think he turned out to be way more open to persuasion himself, which made him persuasive to us and, and, and has, I think, helped me have what I would call better coalition values as opposed to purity values. How does that continue to improve in the future then? What's a better version? If the Joe Biden model is 
imperfect from where you were looking at it five years ago, but is kind of working. What what looks better than kind of working? What I would love on climate, on these hard issues of race and gender and sexuality, these really tough issues, but also above all on economic progress and building economies that work for all people, whether it's here or the U.S., I think we need progressive voices, movements, candidates who can stand for big things and yet not allow themselves to be defined as marginal, as out of touch with the mainstream, as un-British, un-American, unpatriotic. Some of that is, of course, the other side maliciously defining, but not all of it. I think there's a real failure on the left, I don't know if it's true here also, to, to claim patriotism to not cede the terrain of patriotism to, you know, people who are like fantasists for, you know, civil war and political violence um, and nationalists. I think there's a real failure to claim ideas like freedom. I don't think the right should own freedom. I think what Ed is fighting for on climate is, you know, the freedom for all of us to continue living and have children and grandchildren. Pretty important Freedom. I, I think the idea that people who just want to cut taxes for billionaires have allowed themselves to colonize the idea of freedom, and, and many of us have essentially allowed that to happen. So I think we need to do a better job at running people who want bold things and read mainstream instead of, you know, who want mainstream things and read radical, which is the worst of all worlds. I've got one last question, which is, Apart from buying your book, which we'll encourage them to do, what should our listeners in their everyday lives, and this is a really hard question, having written the book and thought a lot about this, what's your sort of lesson or what's your the kind of message you want to pass on? Yeah, two things. One is I created a free guide for the kind of more interpersonal side of persuasion, trying to apply some of the lessons of the book to holiday dinners and these kinds of things that I know people are struggling with everywhere. So if you go to the persuadersbook.com, there's a free PDF that's, you know, taking this down to uncles and aunts and coworkers and, you know. Podcast um, co-hosts. Exactly, exactly. Um, And then at the political level, I think something, I don't know that this has come to Britain yet, and if it hasn't, it'd be a great thing to bring to Britain. The final chapter of the book is about this experiment called Deep Canvassing which was the single most hope-giving thing that I saw in writing The Persuaders. And it is a process by which people are going door-to-door in their communities in the United States, talking about the hardest issues with their neighbors, spending 30 to 40 minutes on each door. This is not about, do you know where your voting place is, or do you, please, you know, five minutes, here's a flyer. This is 30 to 40-minute live-action persuasion on the hardest questions, right? And I think given the the right has a lot of built-in advantages right now with obviously big money and 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 powerful voices like Rupert Murdoch and you know the willingness to lie is a, a huge advantage if you're willing to lie really the world is your oyster. I think the political left the antidote is deep deep organizing, not just asking people for their vote. But you take a country like Britain that has gone through upheaval after upheaval, like so many places in the world, Brexit just one among so many, walking with people through their anxieties, their fears, not lecturing them that they're wrong to be afraid of this or wrong to be afraid of that, but 
talking them through that and organizing them into understandings of those issues, of those fears that lead them in a direction of more open-heartedness to all kinds of people instead of more narrowness. And I think if, if people are interested in that, that is something that can be done anywhere. I'm not sure it's happening here, this deep canvassing thing specifically. There's a group called People's Action that does it in the U.S. I think that would be an incredible thing for people to start doing here if it's not already being done. Okay, well, listen, it's been fantastic to talk to you. The book is The Persuaders, Winning Hearts and Minds in a Divided Age. Anand, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you both. I really appreciate the conversation and thanks for the work you do. 